Welcome to the National Community Church Podcast. We're thrilled to be able to share this weekend message with you from Pastor Mark Batterson, our lead pastor at NCC. If you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes or go to theaterchurch.com. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. The NIV says, be very careful then how you live. Verse 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Two weeks ago, we talked about this little phrase, because the days are evil. I said it's not enough to be colorblind, we need to be color brave. It's not enough to not be racist, we're called to the ministry of reconciliation. What I want to do this weekend is back up the truck, because uh, there's a little phrase here that I love, and we're in a series called Time, Talent, and Treasure. So we're going to zoom in on this phrase, redeeming the time. The word redeem comes from the Greek word exagorazo, and it means to rescue from loss. And that may be why the NIV translates it, uh, make the most of every opportunity. There are two words for time in the Greek language. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. The first word is chronos, and the second word is kairos. Let me do a little etymology. Uh, Chronos is where we get our word chronology. It's calendar time. Uh, It's clock time. Uh, Chronos is sequential, past, present, future, and it's linear. It moves in one direction. According to Greek mythology, Kronos was a short god with muscular legs and winged heels. He moved fast, so fast that once he passed you, he was impossible to catch. Now to symbolize the transience of time, Kronos had a full head of hair in front, but he was bald in back. In other words, you can't grasp the present once it's past. One last observation, Kronos is a human construct. It's how we humans measure time. But like I said two weeks ago, God doesn't exist within the space-time dimensions he created. Uh, So we've got to be very careful not to put God on our clock, on our timeline. By the way, it wasn't until the 14th century that Uh, We invented what is uh, known as the mechanical clock, uh, but that clock still had no minute hand. Uh, I think 1500, the clock at Wells Cathedral in England started chiming every quarter hour, so time was kind of speeding up. And and then around 1670, uh, the minute hand finally became commonplace, but it wasn't until the 18th century, that portable timekeeping devices were invented. And then in 1786, uh, England exports 80,000 clocks and watches, and we have been on the clock ever since. The second word for time is kairos, and it refers to a window of opportunity, a critical moment 
an appointed time. It, it's Esther 4.14, for such a time as this. Kronos is quantitative. It counts the minutes. Kairos is qualitative. It captures the moment. It's carpe diem, seize the day. Now, uh, etymologically, uh, the word kairos is an archery term, refers to an arrow uh, that is uh, shot at the right trajectory with the right force to hit a target. If it's a long distance away, an archer knows that there are going to be more variables that come into play. In fact, that arrow must be aimed off target in order to hit the target. It's the ability to evaluate those variables that's kairos. Now listen, time management, as in Kronos, is important. The psalmist even tells us to number our days. If you don't control your calendar, you know your calendar is going to control you. And so you've got to establish priorities. You've got to establish boundaries. But I think even more important than managing our time, uh, which maybe is a, another sermon for another day, is redeeming the time. And in case you haven't guessed it by now, the little word for time in Ephesians 5.16 is that word kairos. Time may be measured in chronos, but life is measured in kairos. And discerning those moments is at the heart of what it means to redeem the time. I think it's living as if each day is the first day and last day of your life. It gets seeing and seizing God-ordained opportunities. It's being fully present right here, right now. It's understanding that this is the day that the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. I think it's discerning the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's recognizing those critical moments, those teachable moments, those holy moments. And so I believe in Lombardi time. If you aren't 15 minutes early, you're late, right? Uh, but e even more than that, I believe in this idea that Paul is trying uh, to communicate, uh, this idea of redeeming the time. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Let me go back to the story in Esther uh, that I referenced two weeks ago. Uh, Mordecai says to Queen Esther, if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, two weeks ago, I said that inaction is an action. Indecision is a decision. And sometimes silence sanctions. And I would add that delayed obedience is disobedience. I think what Mordecai is saying here to Esther is, you better make the most of this opportunity. You better redeem the time. Now it seems uh, like the worst of situations, the Jewish people on the brink of genocide, 
But Mordecai has a unique perspective. I think he knows that God is setting Esther up. And here's what I believe. God's doing the same thing in your life. But you have to redeem the time. And so uh, I want to talk about uh, how we do that and share five lessons about uh, redeeming the time, discerning God's timing, and capturing those Kairos moments. And so number one, if you're taking notes, uh, it's going to sound like a platitude, but it's true. Number one, you've got to trust God's timing. Let me just say this. I think, in my experience, the hardest thing to trust about God might be God's timing. It, it, it rarely is my timeline. Um, and it is not easy, but I think it's critical. This week I happened to notice that uh, Yakov Smirnoff, I think he was in the Washington Post, is making some kind of comedic comeback. And uh, it reminded me of one of my favorite stories. When he immigrated to the United States in 1980, someone asked him what his favorite thing was about uh, America, and he said his favorite thing was grocery stores. He said, I never, uh, I'll never forget walking into a grocery store, walking down one of the aisles, and I saw powdered milk. Just add water, you get milk. He said, I saw powdered orange juice. Just add water, and you get orange juice. He said, then I saw baby powder, and I thought to myself, what a country. <laughs> we want powdered dreams. We want powdered miracles, we want powdered promotions, we want powdered blessings, we want powdered promises, but you and I both know it doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. Galatians 6, 9 says, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time. I think it's this idea of kairos. At the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, overarching observation, you can't break the law of sowing and reaping. It will make or break you. You can't cheat the system. There are no... Shortcuts, there are no cheat codes. Um, you're going to sow what you reap. Now, let me make uh, an observation right here, and you're not going to like it. I don't like it either. But I think it's critical to understanding the way that God works. Here it is. God doesn't always reward good deeds on the spot. Sometimes there is a time-delayed blessing, a time-delayed miracle, a time-delayed answer. In fact, I would even go so far as to say sometimes the answer uh, isn't one that we discover this side of the space-time continuum. Sometimes it's going to be something that only gets rewarded in heaven. And I'm okay with that because that's the goal. Uh, this story in Esther is such a great example. So the Jewish people uh, on the brink of genocide, a plot hatched by a man named Haman who hates Mordecai. And uh, 
comes up with this plan. He erects a 75-foot pole in which to impale Mordecai. But on the eve of Mordecai's execution, God shows up and shows off. Esther 6.1, here's what happens. That night, the king couldn't sleep. Can I just say that I believe in sovereign insomnia? Listen, sometimes I can't sleep because I ate the wrong thing. Or if I exercise too much late at night, man, it gets my adrenaline going. So there, listen, there, there are factors um, if I have too much caffeine. But, but I believe that there are times that God wakes us up or keeps us up because he wants to do something unique. And so that night, the king couldn't sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai, and this had happened long before, had exposed uh, two people named Bigthana and Teresh, a couple of very cool ancient names. Uh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Mordecai uncovers this plot, but guess what? Goes unrewarded, goes unnoticed. If I'm Mordecai, that's a little frustrating because this is the moment when I want the promote, because I want good deed to be rewarded on the spot immediately. But I think sometimes uh, God has a different plan and a different timeline that he's working. And, and you got to love this. He flips a script in, in, in one fell swoop. And so the next thing you know, the next day, I'm going to ruin the end of the story. Mordecai is riding the king's horse, wearing the king's robe and uh, signet ring. And there's this ticker tape parade through the streets of Susa while Haman is impaled on the pole that he built for Mordecai. What? Let me have a little bit of fun with this story. You tell me, what are the chances that King Xerxes would get a case of insomnia on the eve of Mordecai's execution? Let's just call it one in 365. How does that sound? Um, now, as a ruling monarch, King Xerxes probably had the biggest library in Persia. N no way to know its exact contents, but wouldn't be surprised if it was on par with the Royal Library of Ashurbanipal. The British Museum puts uh, the number of Ashurbanipal's holdings at 30,943 scrolls and tablets. And so if we use that as a benchmark, uh, the chances of King Xerxes choosing that book, the book of the Chronicles, off the shelf, we'll just call it one in 30,943. And finally, how I, I, we have no idea how big the, the book of the king's reign was, but I bet it was closer to an encyclopedia than a comic book. Now, since a lot of you work uh, on the Hill, you know that at the end of every day, the congressional record uh, takes pretty copious notes. And so uh, everything from the opening prayer, petitions, nomination, text amendments, joint resolutions, uh, it gets recorded. Um, first day of the 115th Congress, I think it was 101 pages. Uh, but my guess, we're probably uh, a little bit more copious than the Persians. And so we'll just call it a thousand pages, even though he had ruled for 21 years. 
So I'm being conservative here. And so the odds of Xerxes landing on the very page in the very paragraph profiling Mordecai's good deed um, was 1 in 11,294,195,000. I think that's about when you start to figure out that God might be part of the equation here. I think what I'm trying to get at is redeeming the time, I think, is the ability to discern the difference between coincidence and providence. And I'm not suggesting that's easy. And I think we make mistakes both ways. But I I think it's important for us to reckon there is a God who is ordering our footsteps, who is preparing good works in advance who finishes what he starts, and even though sometimes those good works don't get, those good deeds don't get rewarded right on the spot. Uh, You know what? I've seen God in my life show up a time or two. Give me one of those time-delayed blessings that makes me appreciate that the blessing didn't happen right on the spot. So, uh, Mordecai might have felt a little forgotten, a little neglected. God, come on, I saved the life of the king, and here we are on the brink of genocide. But, but God knows what he's doing. And I think he was making sure Mordecai's good deed would be remembered and rewarded at just the right time. Uh, let me rewind a moment. Uh, a week ago in change, uh, we dedicated our D.C. Dream Center. Um, awesome mayor showed up. Uh, couple hundred of you showed up, media showed up. I think we got eight seconds on the news that night. Hey, we'll take it. Good news how to make the news, right? Um, and uh, it, it, was a, it was a day. And finally, at the end of the day, Laura and I were just kind of um, zooming out and like, wow, what a, what a banner day. And that's when someone commented on her Facebook page. And just happened to mention that it was 20 years to the day, from the day, that we hosted our first Convoy of Hope outreach. August 23rd, 1997. I actually went back and found the 1997 calendar. I Googled it. And uh, that was the day. Um. Our church, about 50 people, in part because it was summer, it was August, and so our students hadn't come back yet. And so we're about a church of 50 people, and we pulled off an outreach. Uh, 5,000 people showed up, and we blessed their socks off. Um, it, it was incredible. In fact, this is so fun. Kitty Corner to Ebenezer's is the um, Security and Exchange Commission, uh, largest office building in D.C. But before it was an office building, it was a parking lot. And it was on that parking lot that we held that outreach. So I often think of myself, of the the people that came to faith in Christ that day um, on that parking lot. uh, Crazy. And and now it's this office building. And, And so here's the deal. The next day, I couldn't wait. Because I thought maybe 5,000 people would show up at church. (laughs) And uh, I think we have 55. 
Not more than like five people, maybe five people from that outreach showed up. We had a conversation about it. Because I thought that that effort maybe warranted a little bit more of the harvest. Because I like to harvest things the next day. Now, I think two things happen, and this is hindsight, but I, I tell you what, that event, that outreach, listen, it was, it was one way of us saying, we're not just trying to plant a church, we're trying to bless a city, and that's what we did. And I think it catalyzed this core conviction that we have that God's going to bless us in proportion to how we give to missions and care for the poor in our city, and that's what we did that day. And I'll tell you this, from that day to this day, I, I, listen, if we are taking care of the poor in our city, I'm not worried about our finances. I'm not worried about our future. Because when you do things that are near and dear to the heart of God, he's got your back. He's got your back. You can take it to the bank. But I think the second lesson that I learned and I've never known exactly how to say this because it almost doesn't, but, but here it is. Uh, sometimes when we're faithful here, God blesses us there. And I wish it was here, usually. But often, it's there. If we do the right thing, Day in and day out. God's going to show up and show off. Do not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, at the kairos time. Listen, God will bless you here, there, or somewhere. It might not be now, but it'll be now or later. And so, I just happen to believe that the fact that that outreach and that dedication, separated by 20 years to the day, might be more than coincidence. It might be God's way of saying, hang in there. A little bit of patience. A little bit of time. Watch what I can do. I promise you that we overestimate what we can do in a year or two. But we underestimate what God can accomplish in 10 or 20. Number two, you're going to have to go fast. Uh, don't be so focused on getting out of tough situations that you fail to get anything out of tough situations. In other words, you've got to learn the lessons that God's trying to teach. Uh, some of you, I know, are in a waiting season. And... I don't particularly enjoy waiting seasons, but here's what I want you to know. The goal is not the goal. The process is the goal. It's not about accomplishing the dream. It's about who are you becoming in the process? Are you being transformed into the image of Christ? And I've found that usually that happens more effectively when it takes longer and it's actually harder. Because then God can work on my character a little bit. 
You know, on October 8th, I'll, I'll run the Chicago Marathon. I'm doing it to uh, celebrate God healing my asthma, uh, 425 days inhaler-free. That's what I'm talking about. And, um, you know, I can't wait for, for the marathon because no one told me it's a part-time job training for this thing. I mean, it's ridiculous, those long runs, especially when you run slow. <laughs> Takes forever, like a half day. And uh, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait for that moment to cross that finish line. But you know what? Really, it's about the 72 training runs that I will have run over 18 weeks. Not really about the 26.2 miles. It'll be about the 435 miles that these two reconstructed knees have run. Not about the goal. It's about the process. It's about who I'm becoming in the process. I think here's the danger uh, that, that many of us struggle with. I call it the win-then syndrome. Uh, you know, it starts usually when, when you're a kid. Um, when I get my license, when I go to college, when I graduate from college, when I get a job, when I get married, when we have kids, when our kids go to college, when our kids graduate from college, when we retire, then life is going to be good. No, it's not. It's not about changing circumstances. It's about changing us. And so what we do is we pray and ask God to change our circumstances. And those are the very circumstances that God is using to change us. And we want to get out of it, but we better learn the lesson that God's trying to teach us. Here's what I know for sure. God loves you too much uh, to bless you before you're ready to be blessed. If you don't have the character to, uh, to support the blessing, then what happens is the blessing becomes a curse. You know, if your goal is financial independence, that's great. That's great. But I'll tell you this, if the motivating factor is greed, uh, that blessing is going to become a curse. In fact, that asset's going to become a liability in your life. But if the goal is generosity, okay. Now the blessing is a blessing because you're flipping the blessing and blessing others. And so I think what I'm getting at is this, uh, and this is a tough one to pray, but Man, I don't want God to bless me beyond my ability to steward it. That's scary. I don't want my gifts to take me someplace where character can't sustain it. Because that's going to be a hard fall. Number three, don't put a period where God puts a comma. Don't put a comma where God puts a period. 
I don't have time to talk about this, but let me just give you one little word of encouragement. Um, Laura and I have, have friends, Dennis and Donna Pisani, who pastor Capital City Church, a, a sister church here in the city. We love them to death. And uh, Donna wrote this book, The Power of Not Yet. And I love this idea, that, that, and this is just a word of encouragement. Some of you think that God has said no, but you misinterpreted what God said. What he really said was not yet. So hang in there. Let's not put a period where God puts a comma. Uh, number four, uh, don't get ahead of God. And uh, th this is a tough one uh, because that's what we tend to do. Uh, we tend to uh, get ahead of God. Uh, one of my spiritual heroes is a guy named Peter Marshall. He was the chaplain of the Senate. Uh, for many years, and he pastored New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, uh, which was called the Church of Presidents. And, and, uh, but let, let me share the backstory of how he got here. And because some of you are trying to figure out the will of God, and, and I've got about five different tests that I employ, and uh, I don't have time to talk about all five of them. Uh, I actually write about all five in Whisper, and we're going to give you a copy in about seven weeks. Um, but this is one of them. I call it the release from and called to test. So in 1936, a search committee from New York Avenue Presbyterian asked Peter Marshall to become their pastor. And I love what he says. He says, I'm not ready yet. What kind of integrity does it take? To say, I'm not ready yet. I, I love this. Uh, I'm not ready yet for the responsibilities and the dignities which would be mine as minister of the New York Avenue Church. I'm too young, too immature, too lacking in scholarship, experience, wisdom, and the ability for such a high position. Time alone will reveal whether or not I shall ever possess these qualities of mind and heart that your pulpit demands. Come on. Love that. But it was more than humility. Um, it's the fact that the timing wasn't right. He had just taken a pastorate, I believe, in Alabama. And, and here's the deal. The will of God is like a lock with two pins. The first pin is called to, and the second pin is released from. Um, so you've got to be called to and released from. And here's what's tough. When you're called to, but you're not released from. Do you have the integrity to stay right where you are? Or if you're released from, but you don't know what you're called to. It's like this spiritual no man's land where you're flailing. Like, what do I do next? Here's my advice. Do what God said last and keep doing it until God brings that revelation. And so uh, this is so great. A year later, they couldn't find the right candidate for the church. And so the search committee doubles back to Peter Marshall. And, uh, and a year later, um, he felt like God had released him. And he still felt called to. And so he takes this step of faith and uh, becomes the pastor of that church. And the rest is history. Here's what I want you to hear right now. The fastest way to get where God wants you to go is to wait. Yes, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. But you know what he said after that, right before his ascension? He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift the Father promised. And they, what, what did they, we waited 10 days. What if they had only waited nine days? 
I don't think we'd be here. Because they needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I think we have a tendency to get ahead of God. And I'll tell you what happens when, when we get ahead of God. We, we begin to do God's job for him. And I'm terrible at God's job. And what happens is we try to begin to manufacture the miracle. Isn't that what Moses was doing when he took matters into his own hand and said, this injustice is wrong. You killed this. So I'm going to kill you. Can, can I tell you what happens when you get ahead of God? It costs you 40 years. And so we got to be careful. I, I remember when the Lord gave me a promise many, many moons ago that, that he was going to do a $2 million miracle. And that, it's hard to share this out of context because uh, that was very unique, um, but it was inspired in prayer. And years passed, and I thought, God, I, you gave that promise. Like, where, where's the answer? And, uh, you know, the answer would come soon enough with a, a $3 million gift, and God said, I, I can do one better. But in the interim, um, you know what I tried to do? I tried to manufacture a miracle. Some of you know this story. Uh, had this business idea. I thought it was brilliant. And so uh, I'm so grateful that it was only our money that was invested in it because we lost all of it. So what I thought was a $2 million idea, I was sure of it, um, ended up costing us about uh, $15,000. Don't try to manufacture the miracle. Uh, you need a little bit of patience. I'm going to close with this. Um, we've got to trust God's timing. It's so hard to do. I think mean, we've got to recognize that good deeds aren't always rewarded on the spot. Uh, we've got to recognize that the process is the goal. And don't get so focused on situation, getting out of situation, that you don't get anything out of those situations. Don't put a period where God puts a comma. Don't try to get ahead of God. Don't try to manufacture the miracle. Let me close with this one little thought. Um, because this reorientation totally changed the game for me. You know what I realized a few years ago? Is that, and part of it is that I'm a driven personality. That I think every prayer I prayed I would just attach an ASAP. God, would you do this or that or the other thing? And would you do it as soon as possible? See, I, I want God to do it yesterday. And then a flip, a switch flipped, um, partially inspired by this guy, Honey the circle maker, put himself in a circle and said, I'm not coming out. Came up with this little acronym, uh, ALAT. So instead of ASAP, as soon as possible, ALAT is as long as it takes. As long as it takes. I'm going to pray as long as it takes. I'm going to keep believing as long as it takes. I'm not going to give up as long as it takes. I'm going to keep seeking and keep knocking, and keep asking. And I realize that all three of those are present imperative verbs. In other words, they represent continual action. I wonder if we put a few uh, ASAPs on God.
And if we don't need to, A-L-A-T, as long as it takes, do not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, you will reap a harvest. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You're never early. You're never late. God, you are right on time. Even when we're frustrated by the timeline, even when it feels like it's taking forever, God, I believe that you're working your plan and your process in each one of our lives. God, would you give us the patience we need? And would you give us the wisdom to discern the lessons that you're trying to teach us, to cultivate the character that you're trying to grow in us. In Jesus' name, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I, I want to ask uh, everyone at all eight of our campuses, he, he, here's the deal. Uh, the Bible says that now is the day of salvation. I believe this is a Kairos moment for some of you. Uh, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if we profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And something happens in that moment when we put our faith in Christ. The gift of God is this thing called eternal life. Now here's the irony. We want to spend eternity with God. We just don't want to spend time with him. And so... If we're going to spend eternity with him, the best way to redeem the time is to spend time with God. But I believe that God wants to spend eternity with you. So much so that he sent his son to a place called Calvary to die on a cross for my sin and for yours. And the Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what happens in that moment? The past becomes the past. And in that moment, in that Kairos moment, the future becomes all eternity. If this is that moment for you, I want to ask you to do something pretty simple and we're almost done. If you want to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, put your faith in him. I want to ask you just to slip up a hand and take it back down. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. Just put up a hand, take it back down. Well, I want to thank those of you who raised a hand. And God, I pray right now that in this moment, you would seal in each one of their hearts the gift of salvation that you're giving to them in this moment. Thank you for this Kairos moment. We celebrate with the angels in heaven and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.